In Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5, down through 18, it sounds like a lot, but we should get, get through it. It won't take us too long. But what I want to address this morning would be basically this question. Why did Jesus come to earth? Now, we would probably answer something to the effect of, well, to die for our sins, and that would be correct. That, that's not a wrong answer. That, that is the right answer. He came to die for our sins. Yes. But what I want to show from Hebrews this morning is it's deeper than that, though. Yes, he came to die for our sins, but there's still a deeper issue. But why did he have to do that in the first place? Why did humanity need saving at all? So why did Jesus come to this earth? And there's a deeper question than that, too, that I believe the writer of Hebrews will address. And it's this. What is our purpose? What is the purpose of humanity? I bet many people at times have lived their lives and wondered, why am I here? What's the purpose of life? What's the purpose of living life? What's the value of life? Why does life exist at all? Well, with that in mind, as we go through Hebrews here, the author's going to tackle some of these and help us see there is a really good answer to, first of all, why Jesus came to earth. And that has to do with really our purpose, why we are here. Now, the short answer to that question, why did Jesus come to earth, is simply this. It is to restore humanity's purpose, to restore humanity's purpose. And that's really what the message is about. As we look through Hebrews here, he's going to share with us what, what is wrong with humanity how did we lose our purpose? What was our purpose to be at all? And why did Jesus have to come to this earth and restore that purpose back for us? What was that all about? Now, where we've been, if you've been with us in this series, the letter of Hebrews could be summed up as this. Christ is greater. He's far superior. The author's been making an argument and a case for why his readers should never abandon, never lose faith in Christ. He wants us to see today still that no matter what goes on in our earthly lives, no matter what pressures we feel, temptations or persecutions that may tempt us to pull away from following Jesus, well, he wants us to know, don't do that. Well, why not? Christ is far greater than any earthly gain we could ever have. He's far greater. So don't give up on following Jesus. Press on is sort of his point that we've seen so far. Now, he has said a few things, I won't go over all those, but he started the letter with just launching into why Jesus is greater, and he said a few things like he's the final word from God, he's God's salvation plan, he's God's king to reign on the throne, and then he made this interesting case, Jesus is greater than the angels. And we looked at that, Jesus is greater than the angels. Why did he do that? Well, we believe he was writing to a group of Christians who were probably Jews, maybe, Again, it could have been a mixed audience, but probably these Christians were predominantly Jews that had converted to Christ. They're familiar with the Old Testament, familiar with the Jewish way of life of following God, and they revered angels. They had this tradition that the Old Testament covenant, the law given through Moses, was mediated through angels. Well, so they really revered him, and he makes this point to say, if you would listen to the angels, what they brought about in the Old Testament, the law, and that law had penalty for sin, penalty for violating it, if you would revere and pay attention to that stuff, then you had better be much more careful to pay attention to Jesus and what he said, because he's greater than those angels. So whatever he says and whatever he does and brings in, it's far greater and far superior than the stuff they already accepted and believed. So then that led to him giving a warning. Pay attention to your faith. That was our last sermon. 
the last sermon's point was just that, pay attention to your faith. If we are not actively engaged in advancing in our faith, advancing in our walk with the Lord, then by default we will steadily drift backwards. We don't have to do anything but be lazy and it'll happen. We'll be like a ship that just floats away with no engine running. If the engine's not running and we're set out on the course, we're just going to go backwards. That was his warning, don't drift away. So that then leads us to now. He picks up again and he's going to once again say, let me tell you again how Christ is greater than the angels. We might be getting tired of that, I hope not, but there's a very important reason why he brings that up again today. He's not done talking about that. Here's, here's why I believe he brings this up. If you were to say Christ is greater than the angels, that would probably raise a rhetorical question in your mind, and it would probably be something like this. How can Jesus be greater than the angels when he became a man? Are not angels higher than people? I mean, are not angels floating around the throne of God? Is that not their domain? Is heaven and around God's throne, the Bible says? So how can he be greater than those type of beings when he came down here to this place? We can't just fly up to God's throne. Angels can, we can't. They have a very powerful job, a very special job. They're God's messengers sent out, his servants sent out from his very throne. That's very awesome, very significant. So how can we say Jesus, the man, the man Jesus, is greater than the angels? That would be the rhetorical question probably. Well, the thing is, then you would start to think, but he wasn't always the man Jesus. He's the son of God from all eternity. One of the three members of the Trinity. That means from all eternity, before we talk about the Virgin Mary giving birth to Jesus in the manger, before any of that happened, from all eternity, Jesus was the author of creation, the Bible tells us. It was through the son that the father willed to create the heavens and the earth. He had all glory that there ever could be existing as God the Son back from eternity. But yet, in a moment in time, he set that aside and come down to this planet to be the man, Jesus. Why did he give all of that up? Why did he do that? Ashley and I just went and saw the miracle of Christmas at Sight and Sound in Branson. I would encourage you to see it if you get a chance. It was a wonderful show. They had this scene in there. Now, it wasn't spoken of in the Bible, but I thought they probably did a pretty accurate job of telling a scene that probably happened. There was this scene before the Son of God comes down to Mary's womb to grow as a baby and be born. There was a scene in heaven that they showed. The Father talks to the Son. And I'm paraphrasing here, but it's, it's this thundering voice saying, Now is the time, my Son, to go to that planet and rescue those people. And reminds the son, remember what you must do. You will live a servant's life. You are the king of kings, but yet you'll become the servant of servants. You have everything that, that you could ever have. You're the creator of it all, and yet you'll give it all up to have the lowliest of low lives on planet Earth. All to save them and redeem them. So you, there's this scene they do there, probably very accurate. And in that moment, then the son departs, and the Holy Spirit comes down and through the angel tells Mary, here's what's now about to happen. But you know something like that had to happen. There was this exchange between father and son of him saying, this is what we're going to do. And the son agreed to that. Why did he do that, though? Why did Jesus come to this earth? Well, he is the savior from our sins. But again, he's more than that. 
what I want you to see this morning is more than just our Savior. Jesus came to restore humanity's purpose, to restore our dignity, to restore our destiny. Yes, save us from sins, but he came to actually sort of recapture the human race itself from death and punishment. So let's look at this passage now then in Hebrews chapter 2. Let me read a few verses to open us up. If you would, please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. In Hebrews 2 verse 5 says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Let me have a moment of prayer. Father, would you now please focus our hearts and minds on understanding truth from your word? Would you help me, Lord, give me grace to speak your truth? despite my, my efforts of study and, and just everything that I've tried to do to bring to bear to understand this passage, Lord, you're really the one that has to bring the, the power and spirit. You're the one that has to apply this truth to every heart here. I ask that you would do that now. Help us to understand something more glorious about Jesus. Help us to leave here today just with a far greater appreciation for what Jesus set aside to come and redeem us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. So kind of our main theme, our title, Why Jesus Came to Earth. Three points. I'll give them to you and we'll just talk through them. Why Jesus came to earth. I believe the writer here is going to share with us the first reason he came to earth was to restore our purpose, humanity's purpose. Secondly, to rest, uh, he came to this earth to restore our purpose. He came to this earth to reclaim our destiny. And finally, he'll share a very impactful point. He came to become our high priest. So the first point, Jesus came to this earth to restore our purpose. Let's start back in verse 5. Again, he's comparing Jesus to angels, so he starts back with, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. The word world here is speaking about the inhabited parts of the planet, actually people caring about their lives on earth. So the Bible speaks to this idea of a new heaven and a new earth where Jesus will actually literally reign over it as king. I mean, we call him king now, and he is. But that kingdom of his is not fully realized yet on this earth. And we believe in the book of Revelation, he'll have a new heaven and a new earth, and Christ will reign with his people for all eternity. It speaks of things like God himself will be the light. There'll be no more need for sun. So I believe he's referring here to that earth to come, that eternity to come. God has not subjected that to the angels. He hasn't done that. The angels are not the ones who will reign on God's throne, is the point. Angels are important, they're special, but it is not to angels that God has given the world to come. Who has he given the world to come here? People. Christ will reign as the king and his followers, his brothers and sisters will reign with him, the Bible says. But here's what I want to draw our attention to. He says in verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. So he's about to give a quote. And he's going to quote Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. Now here's the idea that's going on. Back in the book of Genesis, you read there, God created the heavens and the earth, and you read the days of creation. You come to the part where he creates Adam and Eve. 
humanity. And God does something very special with Adam and Eve that he did not do with any other creation. First of all, he made them in his image. That was one thing. So they're very special. They're unique out of all the creation. Dogs aren't made in God's image. Cats aren't made in God's image. Only people. But the second thing he did is he gave them a special mission. If you remember that in Genesis 1, later part of the verse 20s there, he says, now then, mankind is to have dominion over this planet. He is to rule over the other creatures. So he gave him a special purpose that he did not give any other creation. So with that in mind, we look at Psalm 8. And David wrote this psalm. And let me read the first part for context. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, verse 3 is where he sort of pivots. He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in their place. So when David says, When I look at the sky, I see all the stuff up there, and I sit in amazement at how God just with his finger can create solar systems and galaxies that we haven't even seen yet and are still finding out more and more as technology advances. We're finding out more stuff just that we're discovering. Look what God made. Well, David in his limited sense back then without telescopes and stuff could still look up and say, this, this is amazing that God could do all of that. Well, in the midst of him pondering that, here's what he thinks. In verse 4, he asks this question, what is man that you're mindful of him? So he looks at all of creation in the sky and says, God, why in the world do you even care about people? We're a tiny speck. We're like cosmic dust compared to solar systems and galaxies and all the stuff that's out there that we haven't even discovered yet. And he says, you made all of that, and yet you would dare to simply pay attention to an individual human life. Why would you do that, God? That's what he wonders. Uh, He says, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? It's not only that God made people, he actually cares about their individual lives. Out of all the things God could be busy doing out there in the solar systems and the galaxies, he cares about your life. And David said, that just amazes me almost more than the fact that he can create planets, that he would care about my life. He goes on, verse 5, yet you have made him, you've made man a little lower than the heavenly beings. Now, there's a bit of a translation thing going on here. In the Old Testament Hebrew, some have interpreted this to say, you have made man a little lower than God. Meaning, God made man not to be equal to God, but gave him some of his attributes, you know, logic and a conscience and ability to have morality. So some say, well, he was saying you've made man a little lower than God. Meaning he has far greater ability than any other creature out there. Some, though, however, have said you can also translate this, you've made man a little lower than the angels. And they see this as sort of a, a tiered level. God's at the top level. The angels are right below him. They kind of reside around his throne. And then man is right below them. They're the, the chief of the creation on the planet. Now, Hebrews, I want to tell you the author there, he interprets it as the angels. So his point then is this. God created everything, created mankind, gave him a special purpose. 
David could sit back in Psalm 8 and say, God, why do you even pay attention to my life? I'm nothing compared to all this. You've made man just a little lower, the writer of Hebrews says, than the angels. So, with that in mind, let's go back to Hebrews now. That's what he's quoting. He's quoting Psalm 8 here to make his point. And his point is this. God originally made mankind to be the managers over his creation on earth, to be his image bearers that carry out God's bidding on this planet, rule over the rest of creation on God's behalf. That was our purpose. Our purpose was to know God, have fellowship with God, be in a relationship with God, bear his image, worship God, communicate with him, and rule over the stuff he made on the planet. We're like God's managers on planet earth. It belongs to him, not us, but he gave it to us to manage and to use. So that's the original purpose. But something happened. Sin came into play. When sin came in, Genesis chapter 3, you can read, theologians call it the fall. There's a reason. We fell from that state we were. We fell down. We were knocked down through sin. Now, it doesn't mean we're less human. That's not what it means. But it means we've lost that special mission, that special place. It's been damaged, deeply marred by sin. Yes, we still have God's image, but we don't fully realize God the way we should. We don't worship God the way we should. I mean, you know how it goes. Sin interrupts everything. Well, the author's point is this. When you take Psalm 8, that humans were made a little lower than the angels, and they're to be the rulers over this creation on God's behalf, we have lost that purpose due to sin. Sin has robbed us of our original state that God made us to be in, in Genesis chapter 1, before you get to Genesis chapter 3. So, then he says here, if you look at verse 8, he's put uh, everything in subjection under his feet. So, that was back in Psalm 8, here in verse 8 as well. He says, God took mankind, placed him over the creation of the planet, and put everything in subjection to his feet. But look at the end of verse 8, though. He introduces that problem I said about sin. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But he says this, at present, meaning right now, today, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's the key phrase. Today, because of sin, he would say, I'm filling in the blanks here. I believe he would say, in the present day, because of sin, back in Genesis 3, we do not yet see humanity fully living out our purpose that God brought us here to be for Why? Because of sin. We've lost it. We've lost our original purpose, and it's damaged us. It holds us back. We can't reclaim that. We're helpless, basically. So that's the end of verse 8. We do not yet fully see that being played out because of sin. So look at the words, we do not yet see. There's a word play here. So in verse 8, he says, we do not yet see something, meaning we as humans, our original purpose is, is held back because of sin. We can't fully live out our purpose that God made us to be for because of sin. We don't see that. But we do see something else in verse 9. Verse 9, he says, but we do see something though. So here's verse 9. Jesus restores that purpose that was lost because of sin. So remember, humanity's purpose, bear God's image and rule over God's creation on his behalf. Sin has stepped in and disrupted that. We've lost our original purpose. But Jesus has come to restore that purpose back to us. Verse 9, he says, here's what we do see. We see him, this is Jesus now, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So now he takes Psalm 8 
and says, let me interpret and apply Psalm 8 now to Jesus specifically. He says, well, Psalm 8 was talking about all mankind. Mankind was made just a little lower than the angels and to rule over God's creation on his behalf. However, they failed in that mission because of sin. They've lost that purpose. It needs to be reclaimed, but we can't do it. He says, but Jesus, though, he has come and been made a little lower than the angels. But notice he says here, for a little while. Again, your English translations may say a little lower. It may say a little while. I believe he is getting at the idea that Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels. It's temporary. Jesus is not permanently made lower than the angels, only for a little while made lower than the angels. Now, how was Jesus made lower than the angels? Well, it's the Christmas story coming up. It's what we talk about every year at Christmas. Jesus left that to come down here to be born of the Virgin Mary, to live as a man, really was a man, to die in our place. Well, what happened there, we call it the incarnation. Jesus, the Son of God from eternity, took on human flesh and come to live on this planet as a man in our place, dying in our place. So that's his point here is to say that is what we mean by Jesus was temporarily made lower than the angels. He became a man, became a man and became temporarily a little lower than the angels. Well, Jesus humbled himself to that status. He voluntarily gave up the glory he had from all eternity to temporarily, and that's the point, temporarily for a short time, come and be made lower than the angels through that virgin birth of Mary. But again, why would he do that? Why would Jesus do that? He didn't have to do that. He did it to restore our purpose back to God. Because look again at verse 9. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So Jesus humbled himself to be lower than the angels for a little while, and then the writer here says he's now been spoken of as crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of everything he did for us. He gave up everything he had from eternity as the Son of God, all the glory that comes with that, whatever we can imagine that might be, to come down here and live the lowliest of servants' lives, die a criminal's death on a Roman cross. I mean, that was reserved for the worst of criminals in their society. That's what the Son of God got, was a petty criminal's capital punishment death. That's what he gave up voluntarily to come and do. For that purpose, he says here, so that... He could taste death for us, for every person. Why? Because in verse 10, he says it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons of glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The phrase I want you to see in verse 10 is bringing many sons to glory. That's people. Jesus came to earth to restore our purpose but he had to do that through a life of suffering and sacrifice and death. And the writer here says Jesus did that so he could bring many sons to glory, many brothers and sisters to glory. So this idea of glory again, he's talking about restoring people back to the original glory, the original state that God created us to be. But we've lost it. Humanity's lost that purpose. But Jesus came to restore it. In, in verse 9, I, I skipped over this, but I do want to draw attention to again, why did Jesus come to earth to restore our purpose, but how did he do that? He says, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I like that word taste. 
It's, it's interesting in the Greek, it literally means to taste, like you put something in your mouth to taste it. And I thought, why did the writer use that word taste? He could have said so that he experienced death for everyone. He didn't say that word. I think by using the word taste, he meant in the fullest sense you can imagine, Jesus went through a full human life. Literally, he was born of a mother. He was a baby who then became a toddler, who then became a child and then a teenager and then a young adult. He had to eat. He had to sleep. He got tired. He had disappointments. His own followers abandoned him and let him down. You read over and over in the Gospels, he has to say to them, do you not yet understand? He, got, he had emotions. Was he perfect? Yes, he was perfect. But he was no less human than us. So I think by taste here, he's saying, don't make any mistake about this. Yes, Jesus was God in flesh, but when he lived on this planet and he died, that was a real death, real suffering. And he tasted it. It's as if he took death that we were owed for our sins, put it in his mouth and ate it for us. You maybe had kids and you try to convince them to eat the food, right? Just put it in your mouth and try it. And they hate it. They don't like it. They spit it out. I'm bad about this because I don't like seeing leftovers. So I eat it. Like, well, I'll eat it. It's sort of, and that's a, a very simplistic way, though, of us being like, God, I'm, I'm scared and afraid of death. I'm afraid of these sins. And Jesus comes and says, I will eat them for you. I will taste them. I will eat them so you don't have to. He'll, I'll take on death so you can be forgiven. You can be saved. So in that way, then, Jesus restores humanity's purpose. He came to be one of us, live like us, die like we have to die, but his was much more gruesome, so that our purpose could be restored back to God. And then the final point here in verse 10 with this, or excuse me, verse 11. For he who sanctifies, meaning makes holy, and those who are sanctified, so those who make others holy, and then the ones who are made holy, we could say, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, verse 12, he quotes Psalms again, Psalm chapter 22. He says, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Now, in Psalm 22, you may know this. That is the psalm that Jesus quoted on the cross. Here's how it starts. You'll probably recognize this. Psalm 22, 1 says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry day, or I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I will find no rest. So he picks up that psalm that Jesus, hanging on the cross, cried out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To make a point here. Now his point comes from verse 22, which just says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. I believe he was using that to say this Jesus suffered a criminal's death in our place, dying for our sins crying out to God in the midst of that anguish, yet he was faithful through it all to the end, paid for our sins despite the gruesomeness of that. And then in the end, he could say, because now I've done this, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. What I believe he's getting at is this. It's as if Jesus has started a new family. Adam had a family. We're a part of his family just by being a human being, but that family has lost its purpose. It fell into sin. Now Jesus comes and says, I'll be like a new Adam, and I'll start a new family of God's people. 
who are perfect and righteous have their purpose restored, and we will be together singing the praises of God. The word congregation here is actually the same word we would use for church. So in a way, it's like Jesus saying, it's like I've started a church, Jesus would say. I've started a church here, a group of people, a new family of God, and I call them brothers. I call them sisters. But the only way he could do that is by becoming one of us. Jesus couldn't from heaven as still the son of God without being human just say, here's these people, we'll just declare them saved. No, God's righteousness has to be upheld too. Sin must be punished. He couldn't come as an angel and say, well, as of the form of an angel, I'll save these people. That wouldn't count. Angels don't need saving, people do. He didn't come, I'm not trying to be silly, but just think about this logically. He didn't come as a dog or a cat. He didn't come as a bear and say, well, I'll save humanity in the form of a bear. That wouldn't make any sense. He had to come as a man to die in the place for other men and women. He had to be made like us, he's saying so that he could taste death for us and restore our purpose back. And he quotes again now, verse 13, And again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8 there. I believe just again to say this, Jesus has created a new family. He calls us brothers and sisters before his God. He says, God, here is this new family that through my sacrifice I have now formed. So Jesus restores our purpose. That's why first reason why he came to earth. Again, he could only restore it through being made like us as a human, dying in our place. Now the second point, he came to earth to reclaim our destiny. Verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now let me pause here then to say, this is what I mean by destiny. What is the destiny of every single human being that has lived, lives today, and will live? Death. That sounds terrible, right? But that's the truth. Human destiny is to die. Now, I'm not talking about afterlife stuff, like do you go to heaven or hell. I'm just talking right here in this life right now. The destiny of every man and woman will one day be to die. That is the punishment for sin. That is a reality we live with. Now, that is our lost destiny i'm saying as people because our original destiny our original purpose back before sin rule over creation on god's behalf be his image bearers live with him forever but adam lost that god remember god said because you've sinned now you will die one day you'll return to the dust that is a lost destiny of humanity an eternal state of glory it's been lost but he says here what's the other reason jesus came Because he himself likewise partook of the same things, same life we lived, he lived, partook of all of those experiences that through death, so again we're talking about why did Jesus have to die? Because through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So why did Jesus come to earth and become a man? Why did he do all that? To restore our purpose, as we said earlier, but to reclaim our destiny, to reclaim us from having to face that reality of an eternal death. We're all still physically going to die as Christians unless the Lord returns, but but we know we have eternal life. Jesus came, though, to reclaim our destiny for those who would be his followers. Because without that, he says here, humanity is left in a type of slavery to the fear of death. He says in verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
So Jesus came to reclaim our destiny to set captives free. Well, what are we enslaved to? The fear of death. Now, you could say, I have no fear of dying. As a Christian, that's great. We, there's a sense we can say, I, I don't maybe want to suffer and die, but if I have to, so be it, because I already know where I'm going. There's a certain boldness and confidence Christians can have in death. What's interesting, too, is even non-Christians. I, I know of, of some cultures, I'm, I'm a fan of World War II history. I've read how in back then, I, I hope it's not so true today, but I know back then in World War II, when we were fighting a lot of the Japanese, the reason many of them would kill themselves in battle when they saw they were defeated, because in their culture, it was more honorable to end your own life than to become a prisoner of your enemy. It was more honorable to make life go out on your own terms than let your enemy capture you and make whatever of you. So in that sense, maybe they could say, I don't have any fear of death. I have more fear of family shame or family dishonor. That can be true, but we're talking in general here. Most people, I would say, really fear death. Sure, some people would rather die than, than face another thing. But by and large, death is the great fear of a person. I read in the news just this week, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, uh, probably him and Elon Musk compete for who's the richest man in the world. But he's up there. He's two or three or somewhere. That man, now this is rumored, I want to be fair, but it is a reasonably somewhat confirmed rumor that Jeff Bezos has invested millions of dollars in a company called Atlas, Altus Labs. Now, Altus Labs is a startup research company to research and do one thing, to figure out how to reverse cell aging. In layman's terms, turn back the clock on aging. Get younger, not older. Live longer and possibly never die. So here is a man who has, materially speaking, enough money to have and do whatever he wants. And yet, he's now trying to figure out, I think he turned 57, and this is his looking at kind of the final stages of life, and what's his answer? He's thinking, I need to figure out how to stay here longer. I've got this stuff, I still want to be here, I've got this sort of kingdom I've kind of made for myself, but gee, when I die, it's gone. So, I think he's just an example of probably most every human. Afraid of dying, afraid of just, I have a life I've made here, but I have to leave it behind. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we could just never die, if we could just stay longer? There's a type of fear that comes with that. And what the Bible says here in this verse is that has actually made people a slave to that fear. They live their lives not in freedom, but in slavery, always being afraid of, could I die tomorrow? Could I die tonight? Will I die when I'm 70? When I'm 80? When I'm 90? Will I make it to retirement? Will I not? That's enslavement. We don't talk like that, but it is. And here he says, this is why Jesus came. To set people free from that type of enslavement. To set them free from the fear of death. Jesus helps, here he says now, the sons of Abraham. Verse 16, he says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Again, just to point out, Jesus didn't come to die for angels, he came to die for people. Verse 17 now. Here's the final point. Jesus came to become our high priest. I don't want to say one point is more important than the others, but this is my favorite. I'll say it that way. So we'll, we'll look at this point and be done. But I want to draw some attention to it. So Jesus, why did he come? He came to restore our purpose. Through his death, we can now, by faith in him, have our purpose restored. Through his death and our faith in him, we can have our destiny restored, eternal life with God. But the final one, he came to be our high priest. Verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers 
in every respect. Now the phrase, he had to be made, is intentional. The word had, or words, had to be. That carries with it a type of legal terminology in the Greek it was written in. It almost gives the tone of a legal obligation. Now think about that for a moment. We like to think of God as, well, God doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want to do. But this term is saying Jesus had to do something. He was obligated to do something. What was he obligated to do? And it's this. If he wanted to save you and I from our sins and the slave enslavement of death, then there was only one thing he could do. He had to do it or it couldn't be done. He had to be made like us, be a person, and die in our place. So that's his point here is he had to be made like his brothers. He had to be made like a man in order to represent humans and die in their place. In every respect, like I said earlier, in every respect, Jesus lived a real, authentic human life. It wasn't like he got to cheat because he was also God in human flesh and avoid pain and hardship. He didn't get to cheat. He fully lived the human experience. And now he says, so he helps, or excuse me, verse 17, that he might become, so here's what he might do to go through that, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Now these people, again, we've said probably are very familiar with the Old Testament. Maybe you are too. Let me just say this real quick so we're all on the same page. The priests of the Old Testament were set up by God, and they had a job, very important job. Their job was to be a mediator. Now a mediator, we could say, is a go-between. You have two parties, and they're at odds. They're not in agreement. They're not together. They need a mediator. There's actually people out there that have jobs, um, different names, but I knew someone that was one of these. I think he was called like a, a conflict mediator. I've known someone that was a contract mediator. What that meant was they were called in because two people had entered into a contract and one side thought the other had broke it and they're fighting now. They can't figure it out, but they didn't want to go to an attorney, so they go to a mediator. Mediator comes in and sits down with them both and tries to figure it all out and tries to come up with a solution that helps both see a way forward. The priests were like that. You have God, you had Israel. They're at odds because Israel's sinful and fallen. All people are sinful and fallen, but God said, I'll make a way, I'll make a path for you to be back to me and worship me, but you have to go through a mediator. So the priests were set up to represent the people of God before God. Only the priests could enter the certain parts of the tabernacle there was different rooms, the holy place, the holy of holies. Only the priests, and at times only the high priest, one time a year could go into the holiest of holy places and offer the blood sacrifice sprinkled on the altar there, called it the sacrifice of atonement or offering of atonement for the sins of Israel. Only he could do that. He went in there representing God's people that were sinful, went in there before God's um, Ark of the Covenant, his throne there in the tabernacle, offered a sacrifice, sprinkled the blood around as a symbol that, God, we deserve death, we deserve your wrath, but you will provide a sacrifice for us through this animal that we've just slaughtered. And he would apply that blood. That's the key. He applied that blood between God and the people. So there could be peace between God and his people, even though they were sinful. Now, with that in mind, that's what he's getting at here. Jesus became for us our high priest. Well, that means, as people, we are at odds with God. There's conflict, and we need a mediator, someone to go between us and God and restore that relationship, bring peace. 
But he says here, Jesus did that to become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, my translation says, propitiation. Yours may say atonement. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, propitiation, I want to spend just a couple of minutes on. Very important. Again, your translation may say atonement. Mine says propitiation. The high priest would go before that altar and offer up a sacrifice and even literally take the blood and sprinkle it on the furniture of that altar. It was all symbolic to represent the people deserve death and God's judgment, but he's provided a substitute, that's the animal, to die in their place, but the priest applied the blood, applied the sacrifice, so that there could be peace between the two. That was called a sacrifice of atonement. And it means a lot of things. It's a very complex word. It means that the sin debt was paid for. But it also means that there's now peace and harmony between God and man. So with that in mind, look here, and he uses that type of word to say, Jesus is our high priest. He died in our place on the cross. And it's as if he went before God and sprinkled his own blood on the altar and said, God, these sinful humans that have lost their purpose, lost their destiny, are doomed and destined to pay for their sins. I'll restore that by my own sacrifice. I'm their substitute. I've paid for their sins. And he, now he functions as a priest and applies that work between us and God so there can be peace. So that word propitiation, let me share a few things on it. This word was commonly used by the Greeks in Greek mythology. If you've ever been in school and you had to read Greek mythology, they had gods and goddesses, a god for everything. You remember Zeus and Poseidon and all those things. Well, here was what's interesting about Greek mythology. They believed that the gods were just always angry with humans. That was their natural disposition toward people. They just didn't like them. Humans annoyed the gods and the goddesses. So the Greeks then thought that they had to offer sacrifices to please them and make them happy. Again, the default position was they thought the gods were just naturally hostile and hated people. And their job was to offer sacrifices to basically get the gods off their back. They offered sacrifices, they just leave us alone. Do whatever you do on Mount Olympus, but leave us alone down here. Don't hurt us, don't do anything. But here's the thing, the Bible uses that same word, propitiation here. The Greeks used it to talk about pleasing an angry God. That's not how the Bible uses it. The Bible uses this word to speak of the opposite way. The Bible says God is not in a state of hostility against people. He's the opposite of the Greek gods. God is not in a natural state of hostility against people. However, it's the opposite. People are naturally in a state of hostility against God. It's the other way around. So God makes people, they fall into sin. And the Bible, I won't quote these, but you could look at Romans 5.10, Romans 8.7. Paul says, naturally we are enemies of God. Paul says in Romans 8, if your mind is set on the flesh, it's hostile against God. We're the ones that are hostile against God. He's not hostile against us. The Greeks had it backwards. So here then, the irony is this. God is not naturally against people like the Greek idea of their gods. God is not in a state of natural hostility against people. Rather, humanity is in a state of hostility against God and seeks to be away from God. The Greeks wanted the gods to leave them alone so they could have peace. The truth is the Bible says we want God to leave us alone. But that's not 
so we can have peace, so we can just continue on and living life the way that we want. So here's what happened, though. God intruded on human existence, not to be mean, but to be loving. He's the one that then said, I'll come down and offer a sacrifice of appeasement for these sinful people. The Greeks provided sacrifices to keep the gods off their backs. God provided his own sacrifice to bring peace to those who were hostile against him naturally. If God left people alone, there would never be any peace for them. They would die in their sins. Again, I'm stressing this, but common pagan religion was get the gods off your backs, then we'll be fine. The Bible says that's all wrong. If you let God leave you alone, you're left alone to a helpless, hopeless state. But yet the Bible says God didn't leave us alone. He stepped in. He intruded on humanity for a good purpose. I want to draw your minds to this point of how much God loves us, loves people. Because, yes, God will judge sin. Make no mistake about that. He will judge sin that's unrepented of. But God's holy and just at the same time he sent jesus to be a way for people to have peace with him not because god's at war with them but because the people are at war with god remember god was in christ reconciling the world to himself paul says that in second corinthians 5 this is what separates christianity from other known religions that i've at least read about other religions out there teach an idea that you've got to get to God somehow, some way, and you've got to do a lot of things to earn and work your way there, earn his favor. The Bible says Christianity is the completely opposite. There's nothing you can do, and it's the story of God coming down and saying, I will save you because you can't save yourself. That's the great love of our God, that he would send Jesus to be a real man restores our purpose, reclaims our destiny, and becomes our high priest. Why do we need a high priest? Because we need someone to represent us before God so that we're not judged for our sins and we can be saved. And he says here, Jesus was that propitiation. That means atonement. It means to sort of expunge your penalty. You're guilty, but you're, you have your penalty just thrown out, basically. That's what Jesus' sacrifice did. Allows us to stand before God. And then in verse 18, finally, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Again, Jesus went through every part of human existence, including being tempted by the devil himself. And the writer here says, why did Jesus come to earth? Why did he have to go through all that? Because if he didn't, you and I could not be saved. He had to, or there was no other way we could be saved. He had to actually be a person like we are represent us before God. And not only that, he says here, like in verse 18, he went through everything we go through and so much more. Have you ever been actually tempted personally by Satan? Probably not. Probably not. But Jesus was. So we can say here, God help me. Jesus help me. I'm being tempted. I need help overcoming this sin. And here's the reality you can take comfort in. Jesus has been through that and so much more. He can actually sympathize and empathize with us when you go through a trial and a suffering in life, when you have sins that you can't overcome and you're struggling with, Jesus was without sin, that's true, but that doesn't mean he wasn't tempted to sin, he was. By Satan himself. That's his point here. He's our high priest. He pays for our sins, but he's also gone through what we've gone through. We can look to him and say, Jesus, only you can help me. You know, Jesus, what I'm going through because you've been through this. You've been through hardship. You've been through disappointment. You've been through setback. You've been through suffering. Jesus can actually sympathize 
with that. And I just want to end with saying then, that's why Jesus came to this earth. He restores our purpose back to God, reclaims our destiny. We can have eternal life with God the way it was meant to be, the way it will be one day in the new heaven and new earth. But the bigger point that I loved, he's our high priest. We needed someone to mediate between us and God and save us. And he did that. He set aside that glory in eternity to come be a man and die in our place and suffer in our place. Everything that we just said, though, this entire message, I'll end with this statement, only can apply to you if you have your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior. None of it applies by default. None of it. A person is not naturally right with God. A person is not naturally capable of standing before him and being forgiven. A person, the Bible says, must confess their sinner and cry out to God and say, God, I repent of these sins. I need Jesus to save me. And he will through faith. Let me close in prayer and I'll have Bruce and his team come. Lord, thank you for your word written to us that we can know your thoughts, your truth, and to live by them. Jesus, thank you for coming, being a human, going through the full human existence of both its ups and downs. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and being our high priest so we can actually be forgiven and saved and stand before God and live with you forever and eternity in full joy and bliss. Lord, if anyone is here and does not know you as their Savior, would they today be so convicted that they can't leave here without knowing that? Lord, if the rest of us are here and are really your children, would we leave here today mindful of the thought of everything you went through and set aside to come be our Savior by really being a man? and dying for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.